Hello, children. I'm Sir Nigel Longstock, official corporate spokesperson for Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes, the cigarette that gives you a reason to live to age 18. Kids can't handle the rich taste of cowboy astronauts, but they can handle the truth. And the truth is that thanks to adult consumption of fossil fuels, most of Earth will become uninhabitable in your lifetime. That means human beings will have to colonize space. And that means space will need cowboys. When it's quitting time on the moon, you'll kick off your boots and enjoy the adult flavors of mankind's terrestrial home, such as roasted walnut, eucalyptus, and dragonberry, but only after you've turned 18. Cowboy astronaut cigarettes are not for kids, so you'll have to wait to enjoy our premium tobacco products. But there's no law that says you can't wear our shirt in the meantime. Starting today, you can buy Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirts direct from the CME website using your parents' credit card. Designed by CME listeners Johnny Ashcroft and Landon Armstrong, they're perfect for Little League tryouts, school carnivals, and custody hearings. Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirts. They're totally for kids, and they're the next best thing to smoking. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast, and now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Well, Ben, it's official. The Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes shirts drop tomorrow over on Cotton Bureau, Tuesday, November the 13th. We will be live and ready to rock and roll. I am just tingling with excitement over this. I don't want to give away too much, but we're going to be offering three different colors of shirts. Okay. You can get that bad boy in straight up black if you are a badass. Won't let, won't let everybody know down at the motorcycle club. That's right. Uh, you can get them in forest green. Okay. If you're trying to keep it classy. Maybe something to wear hunting. That's right. In, in yes. the outdoors. That's what you do when you go hunting is you wear a shirt that is the color of the trees. Uh-huh. A t-shirt. You wear a t-shirt. That's, That's right. the color of the, the foliage. Just inviting other hunters to go ahead and take a shot at you. <laughs> and then uh, if you want to uh, maybe not blend in so much with the environment. We're going to have maroon, maroon shirts. Wow. So three color choices allowing people of all tastes to jump on the cowboy astronaut cigarettes bandwagon. Uh, question, do I have to cut the sleeves off myself or do they come already pre-cut? Uh, I thought with you, once you put them on, the first time you reach for that coffee cup, the sleeves probably explode. Yeah. Just explode right off. That's what happens with most of my shirts. We would be remiss if we did not give shout-outs to the guys who actually made these shirts. Uh, Portland, Oregon area designer Johnny Ashcroft, who many of you know is the guy who designed our previous Dundasso shirts. Uh, you can check out his work over at electricapostle.co. And uh, also illustrator Landon Armstrong. You can check him out at landonarmstrong.com. And the fact is... I cannot recommend Johnny Ashcroft and Landon Armstrong enough. They do great work. They have done outstanding work for the Co-Main Event Podcast. Does Johnny Ashcroft, does he have to go by Johnny because of, you know, John Ashcroft? I assume so. That's yeah. a bummer, man. 
When you are in the fun-loving graphic design business. Yeah, you don't want to be, hi, I'm John Ashcroft, right. graphic designer. That's right. You don't want people to have to say, oh, we're gonna, we got John Ashcroft to design a new logo for our podcast. Right. And people would be like, the John Ashcroft? The guy who lost the election to a dead guy? Settled with the cigarette companies? That guy? That was a screen graphic designer. Then we gave away... I'm going to say about 20 copies of The Undertaker, Rise of the Dead Man, in the uh, Breakfast of Champions last week. Many of those are already in the mail because I run a different kind of operation than you do. Okay, that's unnecessary. That's a cheap shot is what that is. I looked at your quiz in the Breakfast of Champions. I found it difficult. I mean, granted, I don't follow the pro wrestling super closely, but I remember a lot of The Undertaker's career when when I was a child. Um, How... Like, how many responses did you get right away where people were just nailing it? And how many were, like, people were, they missed one or two? Well, I'm always astounded every time we do trivia through the BOC how quickly the answers start rolling in. Yeah. Within minutes. Which tells you people are not, like, going to Wikipedia and trying to look it all up. See, the thing is, I specifically included question number one as a question to separate the marks from the supermarks. Uh, Who was the wrestler that The Undertaker first locked up with in the WWF ring during his debut at Survivor Series? A lot of people thought it was Coco Beware because Coco Beware was the first guy that The Undertaker eliminated at that Survivor Series. The first ever tombstone, by the way. Uh, But the first guy that The Undertaker ever went collar and elbow on, the first guy that he touched in the ring was actually Bret Hart. And I, I think you would have to watch Survivor Series 1990 or have some working knowledge about it to get that one correct. Yeah, maybe Wikipedia doesn't go quite that granular yeah, with the, the details. The rest of the questions were pretty straightforward. Almost everybody nailed those because those it was information that, for the most part, you could get from Wikipedia, except for the last one, which tattoo did The Undertaker get removed from his neck in 2015? Okay, what was that one? It was Sarah, his ex-wife's name, which if you, you know. That stings, man. You're going to get just erase her from your body. Well, I can't wait till you have to get your Sarah tattoo removed. Oh, no, I'm, I'm going to get it covered up with a, just a, a giant eagle. There you go. So I'm uh, planning that. Then the Patreon Power Hour rolls on. We recorded our second episode last week. Just another towering home run, I would say, from the co-main event podcast. Only way to describe it, towering home run. We're going to be sending out our first tips for the well-rounded fight fan email here in a week or two. Sure. We might uh, wait till after the holiday, after Thanksgiving, I would think, and then maybe last week in November we roll out first. We can do the that. First ever tips for the well-rounded fight fan email. I got several good tips. I do too. My the, the tips are ready to rock and roll over here. Update us on the stickers and the koozies. Are we in production? Are we we're uh, just waiting for the wheels of industry to grind uh, into action to get those things rolling out? Yes, we have we have tentatively agreed to an order. And production should begin soon. Excellent. Uh, tell the people how they can get down with the Patreon if they want to. And I assume you have a Channing Tatum quote, an inspirational quote. Let's just not let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Okay. First, first things first, you want to get down with the Patreon. You go to patreon.com slash co-main event. Chad, how many patrons would you say we have right now? Uh, 815. 823. Whoa, that's eight more than I thought we had. We're kind of tiptoeing up tip-toeing to the 900. To the threshold. Where we're the gonna... Day of Reckoning Drinking Challenge. You got your bedazzled jeans. You got your Affliction t-shirt. Uh, I would have to make some fashion moves, I think, when once that becomes a reality. You and me go down to Ross Dress for Less, see what we can do. Yeah, Spencer's maybe. Hit up <laughs> okay. Spencer's, see oh, what's man, up. That is sh- probably shockingly accurate that we could go to Spencer's in the mall right now. 
like right after we finish recording this. Yeah, that's right. Get some glittery t-shirts, maybe some cheese fries. (laughs) A couple of hoagies. Uh, Great. Since we are not quite at 900, that means it is time for me to hit you with a Channing Tatum personal quote. Okay. Are you ready? As ready as I'm going to get. My mother taught me how to love. My mom is the most loving person I know. Oh, that's heartfelt. This has been a personal quote from Channing Tatum. That's a heartfelt quote from Channing Tatum. Give you something to think about. We got music this week from our friend The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check him out on Twitter at The Fifth Element or at Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element or SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. You guys already know that's the word the with an A. I don't even have to tell you. The Fifth Element. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one... In Saturday's UFC Fight Night 139 main event, the Korean zombie totally would have won if he hadn't lost. And this time, we actually mean it. And in round number two, Don Cerrone just going to roll up here in a calfskin jacket and a 10-gallon hat, try to break Mike Perry's arm, and then let his baby hold his monster energy drink. In other words, vintage cowboy. And in round number three, the UFC turned 25 this past weekend. Be honest. Did any of you think we'd still be here doing this shit? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do at about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Jim of the North. Okay. An acquaintance of the, of the, uh, the king of the North, yeah. I would assume. But doesn't really lay claim to any title, just... A lesser Stark, perhaps? Jim, Jim of the Jim Stark, North. you think? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, old Jimmy Stark. Yeah. He writes, can we take a moment to appreciate how gentlemanly Chaz Skelly was in quote unquote defeat this weekend? Dude didn't get angry. Just calmly gave his view uh, on the end of the fight. For me, though, that's a situation where can the ref wait another 10 seconds? Worst that happens is the guy goes unconscious. It's all bad when the ref lets a fighter get beaten on for longer than necessary. But if a guy gets choked out, then, hey, he gets choked out. Uh, can you discourse the point of watching a replay in this situation? Nothing the ref sees is going to make him change his mind on the decision. Uh, Chaz Skelly did kind of get screwed over yeah, the weekend. totally got screwed. Uh, at UFC Fight Night 139, an early stoppage by the referee when he was stuck in a Darce choke, but clearly not unconscious. Uh I don't know if I can totally go with the cavalier attitude of Jim in the North here about what happens when a guy gets choked out because I've seen some ugly shit at uh, small-time MMA events. Okay, right. Uh, but, but at the same time, this was a, a, a kind of like shockingly fast stoppage. Well, and I see what he's saying too, especially something like this. A choke like this, it's a blood choke. So it's not like there's an extreme amount of danger in it going on a couple extra seconds there. It's one thing if it's like a like a more of a tracheal choke, then that could be more dangerous. But a darce choke like that, you know, you're just you're you're cutting off the arteries there. It's not super dangerous to let it go a couple more seconds. And I agree that like Chaz Skelly's explanation to me made perfect sense, where he's saying, you know, I'm doing the right things, I'm sticking my arms out to defend, because what the guy is trying to do there is walk his hips in closer to you, right. and then use his leg to hook your leg to keep you from walking away from him and creating that space. Like the more he the closer he can walk in there, the tighter he wrenches that choke on. And if you can just keep his hips at a distance, you can create enough space to just stay conscious and wait it out, or at least, you know, figure out a solution to get out of that. So he's doing what he ought to be doing there. And the referee, I guess he thinks that he sees his arm go limp or something. I mean, he has his arms extended, but it does seem like there's an opportunity for him to you know, 
you've seen before where they'll grab the arm to kind of test whether there's any any stiffness in it, whether you're, you're still there, or to ask the guy to try to get some kind of response out of him for him to let you know. And, yeah, you're right. When he stops it, then going over there and watching the replay, what could you possibly see at the replay that's going to really make you change your mind? Because if you look at the replay and then you just decide, okay, I was right, basically, even though we all know you were wrong, and that's why you're even looking at the replay. Yeah, and it's one of these situations where it's like now uh, Bobby Moffat has the win, in the in the in the scorebooks, everyone is going to mark down the win, uh, second round technical submission. But there's almost nothing you can do to redress this. Like it's just going to be a loss for Chad Skelly unless the athletic commission uh, were to take like an almost unprecedented step of of making it a no contest or doing something, which they're always kind of loath to do. They almost right. never will do that, especially in a case where they would have to admit some kind of mistake or misconduct by the referee who is obviously officially a representative in some ways of the athletic commission out right. there during the fight. Well, and your best chance to get them to do that is if you can point out that the referee misapplied the rules. He, he wrongly understood the rules or he wrongly implemented the rules. And when you're asking the referee to make a judgment call, it's a lot tougher to get the athletic commission to intervene there. I did see, if you want to take a moment to praise Chad Skelly's reasonableness. I saw uh, a post, I think on like either on Twitter or, or Facebook or something where he was basically saying that he was thinking about an appeal, but only if he could be assured that Bobby Moffat would not lose his win bonus. That if he, if he was going to lose the win bonus, if it got changed to a no contest, then he wasn't going to bother with the appeal. If he could appeal and Bobby Moffat would get to keep all his money, then he thinks that it might be worth it. That's a reasonable approach. And both guys were incredibly reasonable. Bobby Moffat afterwards was just like, it's kind of weird to win a fight this way in the UFC. I'm just trying to do my best. And Chaz Kelly is like, hey, you know, he, I don't blame him for that. Uh, and everybody comes off looking kind of surprisingly classy and sportsmanlike in a situation like this. Yeah, well, they're both guys that come from high-level camps, right? And even though... Uh, Chaz Skelly is a guy who's not like an A-list celebrity in mixed martial arts. He has 21 MMA fights, so he's pretty much a veteran at this point. He's been an under-the-radar favorite of mine since he did that thing where he won two fights in like two weeks in 2014. Uh, Always a way to appeal to the old-schoolness in you. Yeah, and uh, he's one of these guys that comes out of a wrestling background, so he has like the uh, long-term like organized athletic background, which I think always makes people... or I'm not going to say always, but occasionally sometimes, you know, gives people this sort of like level headedness. They've been through a lot. They've probably seen a lot in their time. And so they uh, they don't often overreact to stuff like that. So I like Chaz Kelly. I think he has, you know, his UFC career rolls on. Anybody who takes enough interest in the guy to know who he is will probably know that he got screwed in this fight. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Josh Montgomery. He writes, do you guys think it would be well served for the commissions to make it illegal for all glove touching, hugging, ass patting and reach arounds within the five minute rounds? Okay. This shit drives me nuts. And when using Dundasso properly, it defies the protect yourself at all times command. Now, I think clearly we are talking about Chan Sung Jung versus Yair Rodriguez, the main event of UFC 139, which was in its to its credit. Like a crackerjack of a fight. Yes. These two guys went out and did all their stuff. Uh, the kind of exciting back and forth action that I think you hope for when you get two guys together uh, like that was the bro down sesh ongoing during this fight too much for you. I could do without it. 
I understand, and in a way, I guess I appreciate the, the spirit of the gesture that, hey, I recognize you, you recognize me, we both respect each other and what we're bringing to this fight, even as the fight is going on. I also think there's time for that afterwards. Yeah, yeah. I remember a friend of ours used to suggest a point deduction every time somebody was high-fiving or, or some kind of, you know, mid-fight acknowledgement of each other if it wasn't at the very end of the fight. Yeah. I'm okay with two guys sharing a hug at the start of a fifth round if they have had a real war, like these two guys had had, to sort of, you know, show the mutual sportsmanship uh, and then the sort of camaraderie out there. The thing that bothered me about Yair Rodriguez and Chan Sung Jung was that, like, they were almost agreeing to take breaks mid-round, where, like, Yair Rodriguez would throw his arms up in the air to, like, appeal for some cheers from the crowd, and Chan Sung Jung would basically, like, he basically, like, looked at the crowd, too, like, yeah, let's, you know, show us your appreciation. Well, and he's just kind of giving him a timeout. Right, yeah, both guys are just agreeing, like, okay, we are not going to fight for a few seconds. We're going to we're gonna continue to bro down and soak up the adulation of the fans. I'm not crazy about that. And, like, let's say, let's say Yair Rodriguez throws his hands up like that, and Chan, uh, Chan Sung Jung steps forward and cracks him. Would that be a dick move, or would we all be like, yeah, okay. I mean, I guess he's within these bounds there. Well, remember when Floyd Mayweather did it? When I think it was a fight with Victor Ortiz, and he, uh, after like a low blow or something, or a headbutt, maybe it was a headbutt, and then Ortiz hugged him even after the referee had said, like, okay, fight, and he was still trying to say, hey, I'm sorry, I fucked up, that was my fault, and hugged him. And then as soon as like he did the hug, Floyd Mayweather kind of pushed off the hug, he's like, yeah, 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 boom, boom, knocked him out. And let me tell you, people did not r- exactly rush to Floyd Mayweather's defense after that. Yeah, I can understand that. I mean, at some point you get close to violating the everybody's just too motherfucking friendly rule with this kind of stuff. But uh, I mean, I, but I also understand it. Like, I understand the feeling between those two guys, the like mutual respect and professionalism. But I think you're right to say there is time for that later. Uh, which In the I, hospital, for instance. Exactly, which I think we'll probably talk about during round number one. But uh, almost like... Chan Sung Jung and Yair Rodriguez just became best friends. Next question this week comes to us from Liam Nelligan. He writes, the best thing about WMMA is that every time I go into a fight rooting for a favorite, e.g. Ashley Yoder, I leave the fight a fan of the other fighter, Amanda Cooper. Discuss. What did you think of the decision in this fight? Uh, You know what? It's just like one of those weird ones where you get two 29-28s. and one yeah. clean slate the other way. <laughs> that was always a weird situation. We but, need a term for that. We need an MMA-specific term for when that happens. Well, if there's anybody out there listening to us right now, perhaps they can do some brainstorming. Come up with one. Like, I don't know. It was a close fight, I guess. Uh, it is always weird when one judge scores it the clean slate for the person who's going to lose, but I guess I've been conditioned to be okay with weird judging, like... Uh, inconsistencies at this point. Do you agree that this is a feature of WMMA? Is it just because it more often happens that we don't know as much about the the women's fighters? You mean, is it a feature that you would like go in that cheering you go for in, someone yeah, and then kind you, of like end up cheering for the other person? Yeah, that you go in thinking, okay, I know about this person and I'm cheering for the favorite. And then by the end of it, I've been impressed by the other person. I would say that it's like a unique feature of maybe combat sports and MMA in general. Cause like, uh, it very seldom happens in other sports, right? If you sit down to watch 
the Rams play the Seahawks or whatever, and you are a Rams fan, you're probably not going to come out of it being like, oh, wait, actually, I'm going to be a Seahawks fan. Well, and also in team sports, because the teams don't really change even when the players do, you kind of always have a some kind of concept of who the teams are and what you think about them. Right. But I think it also speaks to sort of like the emotional nature of the sport and also obviously that you are you're having this sport without the the filter of like a ball or a or a team, you know, it's actually without the metaphor. Right. It's a, you're right. It's the sport without the metaphor. So you're actually watching two people fight. I think it's easy to uh to commiserate with both both individuals and I think that it's easy to like be won over in a way that you didn't expect by either courage or uh, sheer technique or, you know, just a, a great fight that you didn't expect from, from two people. And I think it's easier to do maybe when you don't know that much about both of the uh, participants, but like I, I've, I've find it that it happens across the board in MMA, at least to me, a lot of the time when, you know, maybe you get a performance that you didn't expect from someone and it, it, it turns your head a little bit. Yeah. It reminds me of what happens sometimes during the Olympics because then in that situation, there's a lot of athletes and in sports that you don't know, but that you watch because it's the Olympics and it'll be like, Oh, this plucky, you know, South African speed skater or something. And maybe they don't win, but they kind of win people over because we knew nothing about them. And now we know something. And the something is that they're this kind of impressive underdog with a, a champion spirit, and then you're going, okay, I've been won over because I started at absolute zero with my knowledge. <laughs> and then in MMA, of course, you get the situation where, like, uh, in Greg Hardy's last fight on the Contender Series, I remember they did this, like, lengthy, uh, heart-wrenching video package about his opponent where you came out of it being like, oh, man, this guy seems awesome. I hope he does well. Oh, he got knocked out. <laughs> yes. Which has been kind of the case back to back now with Greg Hardy opponents because of the in his UFC debut he fought the the other uh, NFL player who seemed like a really awesome dude was totally laid back and like you know loves his wife and kid or whatever knocked out so it's almost, almost like they're painting a picture for us you can't with, uh, Greg Hardy learn any moral ethical lessons from the result of a prize fight next question this week comes to us from Dale quote unquote Davy McIntyre okay. So he went ahead and included his nickname. Hey, guys, bare knuckle fighting, huh? I'm assuming you guys watched the event. (laughs) Uh, I can't tell if that's a joke. What are your thoughts on the main event? Was the poet Philip Baroni drunk? Because he kind of looked drunk. Um, I watched the highlights. Yeah, I watched the the, uh, gifts here. So I can't can't tell you what the poet Philip Baroni had been doing either pre-fight or post-fight. I will say it kind of seemed to me... Uh, and I'm going to say this with a, uh, uh, a lot of caution that Chris Lieben has perhaps found his sport. Like you don't want to fight the crippler in a bare knuckle boxing fight is my, uh, is my takeaway. Still got the left hand. The one thing that dude can do is hit you really, really hard, especially when he doesn't have to worry about you taking him down, which may be against Phil Baroni. He actually did, but well, he also has a hard head that can withstand some blows. He's got, as he has mentioned before, the button on his head where if you hit it, he just punches you. He can't even really help himself. Probably comes in handy in bare-knuckle boxing. Plus, if you're trying to get me in the door for a bare-knuckle boxing event, it seems like one of the main approaches is going to be get some of these fighters who people know from MMA days, but for one reason or another, 
cannot fight in MMA anymore, do not fight in MMA anymore. And that brings me to an interesting question about Chris Lieben. His one reason or another yes. was that at some point he was medically unfit to compete due, I believe, to a heart condition, correct? I think so. But now he's good. He's uh, good to fight in, like, Wyoming on a bare-knuckle boxing yes, card. Yes, exactly. Because I heard, you know, people asking on social media, how can Chris Lieben even be allowed to do this? He wasn't allowed to fight for Bellator. How can he do it? Well, Wyoming and bare-knuckle boxing is how, I guess. Even though he said, I think he told Stephen Rocco that he has cured all those problems with a variety of, of spices, mm-hmm. I think. Spices Med- and powders. herbs. Yeah. Which sounds like a super Chris Lieben thing to yep. do and believe. Yes, it does. Yeah. Okay, follow-up question now. Did, we're, well, is this three bare-knuckle boxing events? This was a different event, a right. different promoter. Right. And this one had some issues. Like several people pulled out the week of saying that their contracts are not being honored. Sean Merriman, former Chargers linebacker, Sean Merriman, one of those people. So this is a, a different promotion, different setup. No accident that they too went to Wyoming, though. Yeah, but so but we're three total, right? This is the third bare knuckle boxing event because didn't the previous? I think the other one has had three. Oh, they had three, and now there's this one. I think so. Maybe we're they've four. Had three. I think yeah, four this total is... bare knuckle boxing events deep in the resurgence. Yes, you had to keep your ear pretty close to the ground, to even though this thing was happening before the gifts showed up on your Twitter timeline. Really? Right? Well, I mean, you had to be a MMA fan on Twitter, and you would have known it was happening beforehand, mainly just because of all the reports about last minute changes to the car. Like Johnny Hendricks lost an opponent and then uh, got a new opponent, Dakota Cochran, who then beat him up. Got himself knocked out. Uh, I feel like interest is diminishing here, perhaps rapidly. Maybe that's just, maybe I'm just speaking for myself and I'm like projecting that onto others, but uh, are are we going to remain confident that bare knuckle fighting is going to be a thing moving forward? Or like, do we see this? And now we're like, okay, maybe this was a novelty that has sort of run its course. Mostly the second one, I think. And also, the difficulty of trying to get me to pay for a a stream of a bare-knuckle boxing event, yeah. that's going to be tough to do. Especially when I'm pretty confident that I can just go on Twitter the next day and find all the important stuff. Yeah. Uh, last question this week comes to us from Grayson Wagner, who writes... I like that Chan Sung Jung is broken into the American market as the Korean zombie. It's interesting to me when some fighters become known almost purely by their nicknames, nicknames and others like Rodriguez. I didn't even know he had a nickname until Saturday. Now that might just be me, but is there any rhyme or reason to this phenomenon? I thought it was kind of funny when the announcer said something to the effect of quote, we're just going to call him the zombie quote end quote, as if saying Jung is a huge tongue twister. That said, maybe Jung gets more notoriety in the American market uh, for a pronounceable slash English name. Although Paula Costa admittedly, I don't know whether Jung cares what he's called, but I just thought it was interesting thoughts. I think it speaks to having a good nickname, maybe like just good branding overall when you become known, for example, as the Korean zombie or Rampage Jackson, another guy who's basically uh, known by his nickname. Uh, And I think that it's like, you know, he mentioned in this this email they didn't know Yair Rodriguez had a nickname until this weekend, even though like... I'm not going to say Yair Rodriguez, Rodriguez's nickname, El Pantera, is terrible. That's fun. Yeah. Uh, but it's also like it, it runs right up to the line of being like a little bit uh, run of the mill. Like even though El Pantera, we're going Spanish with it, gives it a fun little twist. If it was just the Panther, right. we, we probably wouldn't uh, give it the same credence. But like I think it, when you have a really unique nickname and with the Korean zombie, those awesome shirts. Yes. Uh, 
Well, and that it came out of something. It didn't just appear like because you and your boys are sitting around the gym trying to think of a nickname that would make you sound awesome. Are you trying? Are you talking about the Reaper right now, Robert <laughs> Whitaker? I look. I'm not naming any names. If you want to say that that's who you think of when I give that example, that you think of Robert Whitaker as the Reaper. That's up to you. Well, I mean, not that we want to toot our own horn here, but I think Bobby Knuckles is actually a good example for this situation because the Reaper, pretty run-of-the-mill, doesn't yeah. necessarily stick to Robert Whitaker. It's one of the options you choose from the video game create-a-fighter menu. You're one never, of the options is you can just be the Reaper. You're never going to be like, oh, Reaper Whitaker is fighting this weekend. Bobby Knuckles, which was coined by a co-main event podcast listener, is better because it's unique it fits Robert Whitaker. It rolls off the tongue. There's uh, copious branding opportunities. It's with, fun to say. With Bobby Knuckles. Israel Adesanya is out here calling him Bobby Knuckles on Twitter. So, like, uh, like I think that kind of illustrates the, the difference between, like, having a forgettable nickname and having a nickname that, for all intents and purposes, can become, like, your identity in the sport. And right. when you have one... Like Chan Sung Jung does, it's clearly a good thing for you. And it tells you something about his actual fighting style. Right. The way he can just kind of keep plodding forward. He can take a lot of damage and he's just going to keep coming. It was evident in this very fight. I think when you have a nickname like that where it feels both fun and unique and also informative in a way. Like if I tell you, hey, the Korean zombie is fighting this weekend, you start to formulate some ideas about what that fight might look like, and you would be mostly correct. That th just works. And so uh, I think that one of the things that's interesting about uh, pro fighting is similar to like Brazilian soccer. It's a sport where your nickname can just become your name. Like not even... In popular usage, but like in promotional materials, in like the UFC will just start calling you Chris Cyborg. Right. MMA websites will be like, fine, it, that's we'll change all our tags now. It's just Chris Cyborg. And then that's it. We just roll with it. And, and I, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because we've talked before about how hard it is to stand out and to make an impression in people's minds. The Korean zombie does that. Yeah. And then, of course, you got the other side of the coin where if you are kind of like an icon in the sport – uh, often you will just traffic in one name, kind of, again, a la Brazilian soccer. For example, Fedor is a pretty common Russian name. There's a lot of Fedors out there. If I say Fedor is fighting this weekend, you know who I'm talking about. Fedor there, Johnson? There's no chance I'm talking about Fedor Smith. I'm talking about The Last Emperor. Fedor Leibowitz, right? And, and there's a lot of people like that. Right? Like, there's more than one professional MMA fighter named Randy or Chuck or Tito or Rampage. Uh, for that matter. But like, if I say Randy, you know who I'm talking about. Vitor, you know who I'm talking about, which is, uh, it's almost a Vitor Shaolin Ribeiro, right? Yes. Exactly. Talking about. It's almost the next level from having a, uh, a recognizable nickname that you traffic in as your name. When you're just, when you go one name, when yeah. you're Rhonda, there you go. That's going to do it for this week's, uh, listener mail. If you have a question, comment, a concern, to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast, even though we currently are now recording a podcast on Fridays. Uh, that's the Patreon Power Hour. But the Breakfast of Champions might give you an opportunity to win some stuff. There you go. Pick yourself up an autographed Undertaker graphic novel or whatever else fun stuff we got coming. Did you autograph it with the Undertaker's name? Because that would be worth something. 
I don't think that I'm Police allowed to forge. do it. There's a, some kind of licensing issue name. there. I wouldn't tell anybody. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one right now. Ben, I will say this for mixed martial arts. Even on a fairly low wattage Saturday night, like UFC Fight Night 139 from the Pepsi Center down there in Denver, Colorado, you always have the chance that some crazy shit that you have never seen before will transpire. True. And that is what occurred like almost twice in Yair Rodriguez versus Chan Sung Jung, because not only does Yair Rodriguez win this thing with one second left on the clock in the fifth round in a fight where the official scorecards were about to go the other way against him, but he wins it with a weird bent over backward elbow, almost like a six to 12 elbow that knocks Chan Sung Jung out. I guess that's a positive of the sport. I guess that that's a selling point for the sport where like even on this Fox card, Fox Sports 1 card that like a lot of people probably skipped, you might see something you've never seen before. Yeah, absolutely. And something it reminded me of the Showtime kick in that when you see it the first time, your your eyes and your brain kind of can't work together quickly enough to figure out what happened. Yeah, it was almost like you couldn't see it in real time. No. Like Paul Felder thought maybe there was a headbutt. I was watching it just thinking, did is the zombie fucking with us? What, is he is he actually hurt? What did he what even happened there? And then when you see the replay, you realize, oh holy shit. I can't believe that actually happened. I can't believe that Yair Rodriguez can generate enough force with that move to knock a grown man unconscious. And not like just Stun him, like knock him out pretty bad. Well, I think part of it at least is the surprise that you don't see it coming. Yeah. And you've already been fighting for 25 minutes. That probably has something to do with it. Right. Too. Well, and fighters will always tell you that when you see the blow coming, it's not as bad. It's the one where it sneaks in and you just didn't see it and you don't even realize what you've been hit with. Those are the ones that really can hurt you. And he's coming forward. It comes up at an angle, catches him right in the chin. And it didn't seem like he generated a ton of force with it, but enough, especially in that circumstance, to drop him face down, and then he's done. Yeah, so Yair Rodriguez gets the last-second win here over Chan Sung Jung. I think you could make the argument it was a win that Yair Rodriguez needed uh, pretty badly coming in here on short notice. Uh, Everybody got to do their stuff in this fight. It was the kind of fight that I think we hoped we would get from these two young action fighters in the featherweight division. Uh, Yair Rodriguez kept things very interesting. It was a very close fight. Uh, it was a fairly Rodriguez heavy centric call from the UFC. Uh, but uh, the, you know, even if he had lost this fight, even if he hadn't pulled off this last second KO against Chan Sung Jung, I got the feeling as I was watching it, that this was a fight that didn't hurt either guy. Right. At least, you know, hurt their reputation. Chan Sung Jung, obviously, you could do a lot better than getting knocked stone cold unconscious. We don't want to see that, you know, happen to to, to people because that's a thing that can physically affect you. But like, yeah, your Rodriguez looked good coming off a layoff. Chan Sung Jung looked pretty good coming off a layoff. Uh, my favorite, uh, before the last second victory here, my favorite exchange 
was the spinning elbow where Rodriguez hit Chan Sung Jung right on the nose. Not only because uh, it showed off what Yair yeah, yeah, Rodriguez could do, but that Chan Sung Jung was sort of like, uh, like a fly may as well have landed <laughs> on his, his nose. Well, also something like this, when you lose this way as Chan Sung Jung, uh, it also makes it so that how can you not feel some sense of empathy for him? Like when you get hit with something like that, that nobody is prepared for, nobody is expecting. It's not like somebody can look at that and be like, oh, here's what he should have done to defend against this move we've never seen before. Right, right. And so you can kind of put yourself in both places where you can be happy for Yair Rodriguez and be really impressed with what he managed to do here and then look at the zombie and go, bro, that sucks. Yeah. I'm sorry, man. I don't know what to tell you. Like losing a fight in the last second is some nightmare shit anyway. Some shit that you probably like worry about from time to time, but think, well, that would never happen. Like that's a thing that, that would be inconceivable that it would actually happen. Do you think that that's a move that Yair Rodriguez practices? Or do you think he was just like, well, he was throwing a lot of Yair Rodriguez stuff out there. And like, there are times Definitely where that stuff does not work out for him. And when you're watching him, I think uh, I compared it in one of the things I wrote to like watching someone try to figure out the controls in a video game. And you're like, oh, okay, well, that that didn't go how you thought it was going to go. And he had a few of those in this fight, but never seems to get discouraged by them. If he tries something and it doesn't work, whatever, he'll go and he'll try something different a few minutes later and definitely paid off for him here. The thing I keep coming back to after watching this Amazing performance just throughout the whole fight, and then this crazy finish that we've never seen before. And then I remembered, oh yeah, remember when the UFC wanted to fire this guy? Did fire him? Was ready to let him go just because he did not take the exact fight the UFC wanted him to take on the exact date that he wanted to to negotiate it? And they said, screw you, we don't need you, you're fired. Yeah. Well, he'd been out for more than a year in the wake of that loss to Frankie Edgar at UFC 211. Uh, You're right, it did seem like he was on the outs uh, with the UFC for a while. Uh, so I thought it was good to see him come back and like, not only get the, get the win here, but just sort of like look like Yair Rodriguez for 25 minutes to sort of remind us what he was all about. Uh, because it's, it's a brand of fighting that I think is super entertaining, you know, despite the fact that over the course of 25 minutes, I think there was bound to be slowdowns in this fight. As we talked about, uh, in the opening of the show, there were some times where maybe the love, the love fest got a little uh, overbearing and there were times where it seemed like both these guys collectively decided to take breaks. Despite all that, I was reminded that I really like watching both these guys fight. So uh, like I said, it was a, it was a a fight where it it felt like even the loser didn't, didn't suffer too many terrible uh, consequences outside of the cage or to their reputation or however you want to put it. What do we think happens to Yair Rodriguez now, Ben? Because like we said, like his, his relationship with the UFC hasn't always been sterling. He had been been out for a long time, but then he comes back and he gets this, uh, albeit you know, last second win in a fight that he was gonna about to lose via decision. Uh, do we feel like this thrusts him back into the heat of the like the featherweight rat race, or is it just sort of like a a, a good comeback fight for him? Well, I think it definitely helps establish him as somebody you can expect a good time from from whenever you put him on a card. Which, as we mentioned before, the UFC needs those guys. Yeah, and especially when it comes to trying to convince us to watch some fight night on a random Saturday night where there's not a whole lot else going on. If you put somebody on there where we have it in our heads, we have this association. Okay. That guy comes to fight and puts on a show. 
that's something. Yeah, that's something you can work with. We've talked about that before, especially now moving into the ESPN era, uh, where we think we're going to get the same number of events every year. More and more, the norm is going to be these kind of like uh, Saturday night, you know, uh, cable fight show where there's not a lot of known names. I think a guy like Yair Rodriguez and frankly, a guy like Chan Sung Jung also are are more uh, valuable than they've ever been. Because yeah. you need a bunch of those people now if you're going to put on this many events a year. You need people that we know, people that we think are are fun to watch, and people that we are that a lot of people are willing to like sacrifice their entire Saturday evening to wait for. Yeah, of. absolutely. Uh, well, how about the Bro Down Fest at the hospital? We mentioned it during the the opening, but like now, see, even if you were bothered by the stuff that happened in the cage, I feel like the hospital stuff. You see it, and you're like, yes. One of the reasons I like these two guys is because of stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Also, one of the things that the hospital stuff hammers home for you is this sport is insane. Yeah. Because the winner and the loser are in the hospital. Yes, both of them. Yeah. And that that is not an, uh, an especially unusual outcome. I mean, it's... A little unusual that we see this great fight and then we see them both in the hospital together. We get this picture. But it's not like that doesn't happen a few times a year where we get one of those moments. What a crazy sport it is where you have to go into this fight being like, all right, it's going to be this desperate struggle for survival. Um, Half my money depends on my success in that struggle. And even if that all goes right, still a pretty good chance. I'll end up spending and celebrating my victory that night in the hospital. Yeah. And just to add an additional layer on top of all of that stuff, Chan Sung Jung thought he was going to fight Frankie Edgar. And Yair Rodriguez wasn't even supposed to be there until like two weeks before this thing uh, when Frankie Edgar had to pull out with an injury and we did a, a big time switcheroo. Which like, they mentioned it during the broadcast, like that's a pretty significant adjustment. Yes, it is. Going from a guy who you think is going to fight like Frankie Edgar fights to a guy uh, who fights like Yair Rodriguez fights. So, like, and that affects both guys, because Rodriguez came in on short notice, had to go 25 minutes, or 24 minutes and 59 seconds. Uh, Chan Sung Jung... In Denver. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, in Denver. Uh, Chan Sung Jung had to, like, probably totally scrap all of his preparations. So, just another layer of insanity on top of all this. Yeah. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben, and then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? So, did you hear that uh, a UFC said that a fight between Francisco Trinaldo and Islam Makhachev has been canceled? Boy, I missed that. Well, here's where it gets interesting. Islam Makhachev posted to Instagram about this fight. I don't know what happened. UFC made and canceled this fight by themselves. I didn't sign any papers. I plan to fight somewhere in February against a top 15 opponent, as promised by Dana White. So... They made the fight without his agreement, according okay. to him, and then canceled the fight. So, like, I guess you kind of wake up and you go, all right, I'm back where I started, but where I always assumed I had been. But also, are you fucking kidding me? You're just making fights and canceling them? And I, I do I even need to be aware of this stuff? Are you going to tell me when I need to show up? Fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Maybe it was all just a crazy dream. Yeah, maybe we're all having the crazy dream together. Well, Ben, I know we've talked about this before, and people have written in about this particular aspect of the fight game. But did you see the cage on Saturday night up there in Denver? They had the uh, the retro logo in the middle, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah. The original UFC logo. Uh, 
has been has become good again. It's almost like it's so bad that it's good Enough now. Time has passed. Yeah. But I'm just going to read this list. Toyo tires. Okay. Black Heart spiced rum. Monster Energy drink. Metro PCS. Modelo. P3 portable protein pack. Harley Davidson. Nemiroff vodka. And I think an ad for Circle K, which was like a convenience store when I was a kid. Yeah. And we're going to tell these fighters that they can't have sponsors on their shorts because we want it to look professional out there. Got to keep the look clean. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? This looks like a hippie van from the 60s just like drove into the octagon. It's a fucking uh, Circle K ad by the door, but we got to keep it clean out there. You fucking kidding me. Fucking kidding me. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be back with round number two. Chad, the rivalry for now seems to have been settled. Donald Cerrone goes in there against Mike Perry, who now is Team Winklejohn, Jackson Winklejohn MMA's guy. Donald Cerrone, their old guy. They go in there, they have themselves a fight. It looks like it's going to be about what you think. Then Mike Perry makes the decision to take Donald Cerrone down. Yeah, that was the one thing that did not compute during this fight. And that Proved to be the beginning of the end. Donald Cerrone reverses the, the position first, uh, then starts working his submission game off the bottom, and we know he's got a pretty good one. He's he's surprisingly deadly, deadly from down there. Uh, he, at first, he's thinking about the triangle choke, which is one of the things you really got to watch out for if you're uh, in Donald Cerrone's guard. Then he gets the arm bar, and as Mike Perry put it in his congratulatory tweet afterwards, you broke my damn arm. Well, he was cranking that thing. Yeah, just, well, and Mike Perry did not want to tap, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, we did a deep dive into the career of Donald Cerrone on the Power Hour last week. Uh, and it was one of these reminders, I guess, at least for me, where you have these guys, they've kind of, you know, their, their re- most recent martial times have not been quite as successful as maybe they were in the past. But just especially leading up to the point where Donald Cerrone went like one in three over the course of his last four fights, he beat almost everybody in the UFC that he fought, except for championship level guys. And as you said, you know, uh, starting all the way back in his WEC days was known as a, a kickboxer with a surprisingly deadly submission game. So after we had that conversation and then watching this fight, I was kind of like, Oh, of course, like this, I probably should have been more clear in anticipating what was going to happen here. That like, Donald Cerrone would be a little bit too wily and especially a little bit too talented on the ground for Mike Perry to deal with. Uh, so that part was kind of fitting to me. Thought Even, maybe it'd be Donald Cerrone who initiated that, but yeah. Right, yeah. The thing that didn't make sense uh, was Mike Perry taking Donald Cerrone down. But I think you can also uh, imagine Mike Perry, you know, when he's not thinking about cars that run on marijuana, uh, probably being like, I'm going to take this motherfucker down. He'll never expect that. Yeah. Just like thinking in his mind, oh, this is good. This is some genius shit. And then uh, it not really working out the way he thought it would. Well, then Donald Cerrone has himself a real moment. And after he gets to submit his hated rival, kind of get to say, I told you so to his former team, 
Then he gets his baby mm-hmm. in the cage. Yep. Danger. Uh, yeah. Danger is literally the baby's middle name, right? And the baby is remarkably calm. The, this is probably not the baby's first rodeo, I would assume, Ben. The baby has probably had a lot of experiences like this, just by virtue of the fact that he's Cowboy Cerrone's kid. I guess. Just based on my own baby experience, I was cringing a little bit when this happened because I was waiting for the moment where the baby starts to have a full-scale meltdown on live TV because that that was my experience with babies. This baby, no big deal. Got the headphones on to, to block out the, the the crowd noise and uh, just like, okay, yeah, now I'm be- my dad is raising me up like the Lion King to show me to all the people in the Pepsi Center. And uh, that's kind of in line with what I expect from my first few months of experiencing life. Yeah, it's going to be a different experience, I think, being the child of Donald Cerrone. Well, he talked afterwards like how he kind of couldn't believe what a cliche he felt like and sounded like when he said that fatherhood had changed him as a fighter. But that seeing, uh, he said he saw a picture of his son before he went out there to, to fight and thought, you know, there's no way I'm going to let you take my win bonus away from me when I'm fighting to support a family now. And we've talked about this before about how it's always weird to hear fighters talk about the, what fatherhood does to change them as a professional fighter. Because on one hand, I totally get what he's saying there. That, and I think anybody who is any kind of like provider position for children feels that where you're like, okay, now it feels like more of a responsibility. Like I wouldn't just be fucking up my life. I might be fucking up somebody else's. Also though, there are times where it seems like my own experiences with children make it seem like it'd be tough to continue the level of training and dedication that you need to be a professional athlete. Yeah. Like I said, I think, you know, I don't think it's, I'm saying anything that people don't already know that a guy like Donald Cerrone is probably going to have a different experience than we (laughs) We might have a different childcare setup. You're saying a different childcare setup and basically just like a different mentality. Yeah. Kind of. Uh, But you know, I think it seems, it seems good for him, I guess at this point. So I'm happy for the guy. Uh, clearly he was able to use it as some motivation and, and does in fact get the win. And like I said, at the beginning of the show has kind of like a quintessentially vintage cowboy performance in his home state, uh, which was nice to see, including that he came to the post fight activities in like a lamb skin jacket or like a calf skin jacket with his, uh, I think he was wearing his cowboy hat and uh, said he already has his next fight lined up. At lightweight. At 155 pounds. Which also makes you wonder exactly what we were doing here. I mean, I know what we were doing. We all know what, what this was about. Right, but this is not... I don't, I don't want to say it seems short-sighted, but it is like, okay, these two guys, they have this sticking point between them. We're going to make them fight, and then one guy's going to flee to the vision afterwards, and so it seems like it was all just for a moment's entertainment. Yeah. Okay, well, what about Mike Perry here, Ben? A guy that the UFC clearly has decided to make a capital G guy, despite some of the more problematic aspects of his personality. A guy, when he's when he's good, uh, can be a real, I don't know if promotional juggernaut is the right word, but like, did you see the, the, like, the short video where he was kind of like yelling, talking about how they were going to fight and somebody was maybe going to die? Uh, I watched that and I was like, okay, like I can see Mike Perry being kind of good at some of the, uh, promotional aspects of, of MMA fighting, albeit good in his own way. Then you see him, uh, basically bully a reporter at the, uh, during the media scrum where he says he has friendly hair, calls him a motherfucker, 
because uh, he asked a fairly innocuous question, yeah. I thought. Weird the way he went from like, hey, seems like you and this guy have developed a nice friendship to getting mad about that. And like like he was thought that he was being accused of some kind of homosexual romance. It's always weird, I think, when uh, people like this, you know, fighters like this, athletes that we see in a public setting kind of reveal themselves in moments like that. Because I don't want to read uh, too much into it, but when Mike Perry goes on that kind of jag my feeling is always like, okay, like you are way too used to being like this. Like I can see you shift into bully mode with, you know, basically without blinking. Yeah. And that tells me like you probably do this all the time. Yeah. This is not an uncommon occurrence for you. Yeah. So what do we think about Mike Perry? Where does this leave Mike Perry now that he is the guy who's one in three in his last four fights with the only victory being the split decision win over another lightweight, Paul Felder at UFC 226. Uh, where Paul Felder broke his damn arm in the first round. So uh, how long is Mike Perry another Cowboy Cerrone type figure? Can he go on being Mike Perry forever? And we're always going to be like, oh, yeah, Mike Perry, that'll be fun. Or is there like, uh, does he need to win some fights? Is there an expiration date on Platinum Mike Perry? He does need to win some fights, but I do think he does have a little bit of that Cerrone quality that he doesn't need to win them all. In order to stay relevant, in order to stay interesting. You say, you were saying how there was that video. I thought you were going to refer to the video that made the rounds on social media where he was talking about what it feels like when his coaches are yelling at him. Oh, I didn't see that one. Well, that one, you should look it up because it's a good example of his very weird charisma. And charisma is not even really the word for it. But like there's something about him that seems like a manic energy that you want to watch. And in this video, it's very apparent because he's talking about how it feels. You're in the fight. You know, you hear your coaches screaming at you, but you're trying to faint and set up a, a punch. You don't want to go first because you don't want to get caught. And your coaches are saying, go, Mike, go, go, go. And you're going at them, fuck you. I don't want to get hit. And there's like a weird honesty and just everything is right at the surface with Mike Perry. Yeah. And I guess the the flip side of that is him flipping into bully mode so easily. Whatever is going on underneath, you know, interiorly with Mike Perry, it's not too far down there. Yeah. It's always kind of accessible. And I think that that, that makes him somebody that people want to watch that plus the chance that he can go out there and he has that one punch power. I mean, if you lose a whole bunch of fights, then you just, you're going to become a joke. And MMA fans love to seize on that and at times cruelly make people into jokes. But for now, at least, you win one every now and then, and people like to talk about you. They, they like having you around. They like watching you. You can continue to do that. I guess we know now that Mike Perry can't be anything else besides Mike Perry. No. I mean, that's part, that's the whole appeal really. Yeah. Both for better and for worse. Yes. I think. Well, that's going to do it for round number two. Uh, we will be right back. Round number three. Well, Ben, as we mentioned at the top of the show, UFC Fight Night 139 signified the 25th anniversary of the UFC uh, in America, in operation. November 12th, 1993 was UFC 1, also up there in Denver, Colorado. It's always nice when the UFC breaks out the uh, the retro logo and the retro music. Uh, I always appreciate it. 
anyway, uh, what, what to make, I guess, about where this sport is right now in terms of the consciousness of MMA fighters or MMA fans, I'm sorry, and how far we've come, uh, from the, the, you know, the, the beginnings of UFC one where, uh, Bill Superfoot Wallace literally burped on camera during the first line of the first show ever. Right. And also call it the ultimate fighting challenge. That's right. Uh, did you ever listen to that 30 for 30 podcast that they did about UFC one? I don't think so. I've watched a lot of UFC one UFC. I know. And that's exactly what I thought when, uh, I, my, my old boss, Dan Stupp asked me like, Hey, will you listen to this and see if it's worth writing something up about? And my first thought was, Oh God, not more UFC one stuff. I've watched documentaries. I've read oral histories. How, what else can you possibly tell me about it? And then I listened to it and I was pleasantly surprised that it has some good information, including like from the uh, producers and stuff who put it together where they were talking about how they kind of had a hint beforehand that maybe Bill Wallace was overstating his experience working in TV. <laughs> and that, that, like, they asked him something, some kind of like technical question, like, have you ever used this before? Uh, and like, there was a pause and then he went, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. I'm, yeah, I've done. I'm all. I know all about that. And they were like, "We should have known. We should have known then that what we were kind of getting into here." Um, and there's a lot of good like insights into the behind the scenes stuff of that first event. It's interesting you put it like in the how far we've come thing. Danny Downs and I had a conversation about that. I think it's really kind of a glaring contrast when you look at just. This Saturday's event, right? Yeah, look at a fight like Yair Rodriguez versus Chan Sung Jung. Exactly. Uh, And you see that it has, in 25 years, just become something so completely different. Yeah. Which is like an amazing progression that, and because of really of where the starting point was, that it's easier to grow to this point, but that how it started out as this just pure spectacle kind of thing. Like it was the idea itself that you were selling people on. Bunch of various martial arts masters from different disciplines are all going to get in a goddamn cage and they're going to fight until only one is left. Yeah. And frankly done as a marketing gimmick for Gracie Jiu Jitsu. Yes. Like Horion Gracie, the original fight director of the UFC was a, is obviously a relative of, of Hoist Gracie's. We know now that they picked the Gracie brother that seemed the most unassuming in Hoist instead of Hickson. Right. They brought him in. Uh, it wasn't fixed exactly, but they invited a bunch of people that they thought Hoist Gracie could probably beat, uh, kind of like an extension of the Gracie challenge, which had been going on for a long period of time. Uh, amazing to me to think that a sport came out of that. Like, yes, uh, uh, obviously, uh, no holds barred fighting and Luta Livre and, uh, you know, the sport in Japan had existed for a while before the UFC landed in America. But at the same time, amazing to me that a sport has blossomed from this totally weird endeavor that was UFC one. Right. And, you know, I went back and watched UFC one cause we did one of the videos, uh, where, you know, we're having a couple beers and watching the, the video. And one of the things that I did not remember happening was that before the finals, like between the semifinals and the final, they pause the event so that they can uh, recognize Helio Gracie for his contributions to martial arts. And it's like, that's where if you're Gerard Gordeau, maybe you should have been a little bit concerned. Because if 
I am set to fight this guy in the finals, and then he's the representative from the family whose patriarch is being praised by another member of the family, like, during the event while fans are booing. You can hear fans in the arena booing because being like, what the hell is this? We don't know who Helio Gracie is. We don't give a shit. Get back to people getting kicked in their face. And then you're going, okay, I'm starting to feel like maybe this whole thing is just this family's marketing ploy. And it worked fantastically well because I remember seeing the first UFCs on VHS tape and being like, okay, whatever this skinny guy in the gi knows, that seems like it's worth learning because he's beaten all these bigger guys with it. That was exactly what they wanted you to come away thinking. And you're right that that could have easily just been a weird thing that happened. Yeah. Uh, I think Gerard Gordeau had already reached the I don't give a fuck stage of life probably long before UFC won. Did you ever watch the interview with him that Sherdog did a couple years ago now, but like pretty recently, maybe like 2014, 2015, where he's basically like sitting, I want to say he's sitting near some mats at some kind of event and he's sitting there smoking, they, smoking the, his cigarette. In the 30 for 30 podcast, they talk about him backstage before the fight started smoking cigarettes and just glaring at people. Something going that going on there also. <laughs> Maybe we don't know the whole story. Well, they also I've heard I remember reading in a, I think an oral history on Sheridan where they were talking about UFC one and how the first fight they have where it's Gerard Gordeau versus Tila Tuli and it lasts less than thirty seconds. You know, Tuli charges across the cage, gets put down, and then kicked in the face. And it's an interesting moment because for one thing, it's where you start to get a sense like oh, wait a minute, there could be some real shocking brutality here. Because it's a guy sitting on the ground getting kicked squarely in his mouth. And then the commentary team is joking about, like, oh, I think I saw a tooth fly out of there. And they did. They did see a tooth fly out of there. They didn't see the, another tooth embedded in Gordeaux's foot. Yeah, They did not get removed until later. And they were saying about how backstage the fighters were all kind of like, oh, shit. Like, this, this might be more than I realized it was going to be. And think about, like, all the things that could have gone wrong in an event like this where you didn't exactly know what to expect. Even the organizers didn't seem totally clear on how the rules were going to work because they stop it after Thule gets kicked in the face, but then they're kind of unclear about whether they can restart it or not. And it seemed a lot of ways, like, going back and watching it, like, kind of fitting that MMA started this way because we still have a kind of figuring it out as we go mentality. Yeah, we sure do. One of the things that is interesting to me about the evolution of the sport at this point, uh, and I guess this would be an extension of a discussion about a fight like Yaya Rodriguez versus Chan Sung Jung, is that the in the original wave or maybe the first couple of cycles of evolution in mixed martial arts, we thought we figured out what worked and what didn't about martial arts. And it was a very, frankly, grappling centric, uh, worldview. It's like, uh, Oh, all of that stuff of Kung Fu and karate and, uh, Taekwondo isn't necessarily that applicable to a real fight. Right. It's like, if you get in there with Mark Coleman or horse hoist Gracie, like they're probably going to take you down and beat you. We've gotten to a point now, 25 years later, where not only are dudes like Yair Rodriguez fighting like characters in a damn movie, but we've come to the point where people are good enough and athletic enough that some of those fighting styles that we had basically left for dead are kind of back. Like you see a guy like Conor McGregor and he's using this like uh, almost cartoonish martial arts stance and clearly like mixing it with with Western boxing and knocking people out. But like we've come to a point now in the evolution 
where a lot of stuff that I think that we were, we thought had been weeded out is kind of returned. Well, yeah, that's a good point. And that's also something that like Danny and I were kind of talking about, for instance, if, if this doesn't happen, if the UFC doesn't happen and the rise of MMA doesn't happen, do you think that we just ha- would have con- continued on the same trajectory with just like there are strip mall karate studios and there are taekwondo places and like maybe somebody will make a cool movie about capoeira and then that'll show up for a little while. Uh, but there will be no real mixing and none of them will really be forced to grow yeah. and develop. Would they just have stayed separate and done, you know, kind of varying usefulness arts maybe i think that's that's definitely possible i actually a long time ago now heard joe rogan have a pretty interesting conversation where he talked about how one of the amazing things about mma was how it had accelerated the evolution of the martial arts because in a way and and i'm sure that this is an oversimplification but like martial arts seemed fairly static for frankly thousands of years from the time uh you know of the invention of kung fu or karate to like the early 90s people were essentially still uh trafficking in single disciplines they had a very uh quote unquote karate movie style uh, appreciation for how fights were supposed to go right and they were all kind of protective of their own arts and as soon as MMA came out people had no choice but to adapt and evolve like almost instantaneously in terms of like, if you look at the entire history of fighting, like things changed so fast in 25 years where now you have generations of fighters who have only trained in mixed martial arts. They fight in ways that we never could have even imagined when UFC one happened. And it just, it makes me wonder like where, the the sport is headed because it's already, it has already become a thing that is almost unrecognizable even from when I really started covering it. Right. Well, and the way that it's, it sometimes reminds me of the way you'll see things work like in something like the NFL, right? Where uh, somebody will develop like not an entirely new offense, but somebody will see like, okay, we can make this kind of formation work or we can do a lot with, this kind of an offensive strategy or this kind of a, a philosophy. And then everybody rapidly adapts to it. Like somebody has a lot of success with one thing and then everybody else has to change to deal with that thing. And it just becomes then uh, a, an embedded part of the sport. And you see the same thing happen much more often and with much greater speed in MMA, mostly because the sport is so much younger, uh, but also just because, you know, you see somebody go out there and they they wrestle their way to victory and everybody goes, okay, I got to learn how to deal with that. Then you see somebody who comes out and they've gotten really good at dealing with it. Then you got to learn an answer for that guy. And we've seen that happen so many times. And it's like the the lifespan of an evolution in MMA has gotten like so short that people are able to, to quickly adapt, come up with something new. And there's so much creativity that it's happened in the sport just because like it started at such a low level that there was so much more room for it to expand. But it's also done so much just for all the martial arts because it's forced them all to kind of reckon with that reality. No one can really hide from the, the truth of like what these real fights actually look like. Everybody has to incorporate that somehow. And it's found the usefulness in some of the martial arts that, like you said, People kind of shrugged off as a joke. Yeah. 
in in my opinion, the you know the, we talk about these cyclical evolutions in the sport. Like like you were just saying, it started out like you had to know jujitsu or you would lose, and then you had the rise of the Western wrestler, and it was like okay, well you kind of need to uh, understand takedowns, and then you saw like sprawl and brawl guys like Chuck Liddell. So uh, all of those iterations of the sport changed a little bit our way of thinking, and in my opinion, like the newest evolution of the sport has been like the arrival of really, really high level athletes, athletes, uh, you know, all the guys who fought in mixed martial arts through the years were always good athletes. But now, you know, basically I would say from like the arrival of George St. Pierre and the arrival of a guy like Brock Lesnar until now, uh, I feel like the biggest change has been like the pure athleticism, not, and like, you know, people are, it's more common now for people to, to train in the sport from the beginning instead of being like a wrestler or a Taekwondo expert that had to add all of these additional skills. This new generation of fighters, guys like Yair Rodriguez are probably training in MMA their whole lives. So not only do you have people who are starting from a much more advanced position than the people of the past would start from, but you also have guys who are basically athletic enough to, like I said, start to incorporate a bunch of techniques that at first we were like, oh, that doesn't work. That's a joke. Yeah. Now, I'm, I imagine there's like some old karate masters out there being like, I told you, I told you this worked. <laughs> because now we're starting to see all of these sort of like uh, acrobatic striking techniques that you would think were bullshit. Like now you see them knocking people out. I still do wonder if the economic reality of MMA inhibits the growth like are we not seeing as many high level athletes as we would well, just because the money isn't right there yeah you're not people. seeing like especially in america you're not seeing guys who have opportunities to go play in the nfl or play in the nba or play in the nhl like they're gonna almost always go where the where they get paid the most money and so you're not you know aside from a guy like greg hardy who's run out of other options you're not seeing maybe the cream of the crop but you're definitely seeing uh uh a huge leap forward in the kind of athlete that has come into MMA. I assume because of the, just because of the popularity of the sport and because uh, we've gotten to a point where high level practitioners get paid a decent amount of money, despite the fact that it's still not an equitable split with the, with the people who, who actually own the thing. Yeah. And one of the things that's interesting about the, we got to kind of wrap this up, but like one of the things that, that's interesting about the current product is like we spend so much time, as a culture of this sport talking about what's wrong with the presentation and feeling like the sport today is not as fun to watch as it was five or 10 years ago. And it's directly in spite of in the face of the athletes who compete in the sport being so much better than they've ever been before. Like uh, a fight like Yair Rodriguez versus Chan Sung Jung would have blown everybody's fucking minds if it had happened 10 years ago. And now it's sort of like, Oh yeah, those guys had a great fight. There's another UFC event next week. Yeah. So we will be watching that. Yes. So like, I don't know, man, it seems like the, like the actual action inside the cage is better than it has ever been. But for some reason presented, uh, in a way that is less satisfying. Yeah. Which is weird. It is weird. Anyway, let's do just saying stuff and then we will, uh, we'll wrap up for this week. Ben, did you see that they announced Henry Cejudo versus TJ Dillashaw? Yes. Yes, I did. And they're having this fight champion versus champion. At flyweight. Yes. So I guess I'm just saying, what? Because <laughs> aren't we getting rid of the flyweight division? Sure looks that way. So what? what? Are we just hoping that TJ Dillashaw beats Henry Cejudo and then we can be like, all right, well, we're done with the flyweight division. Well, did you hear Dana White's explanation where he said, 
Uh, we're looking at some stuff with Flyway, and he basically just came out and said, TJ Dillashaw wants to win two belts. Like, that was his explanation for making the fight. What if Henry Cejudo wins, though, man? Like, then you, then you just have to go in there, not that they are not capable of this, because we know that they are, you have to just go in there and uh, bloodthirstily, cutthroat style, just kill the whole division, where you have a champ who just beat the bantamweight champ, for God's sake. If he just beat the bantamweight champ, though, he could technically be claim that he's the bantamweight champ because they both weighed in under the bantamweight limit. I guess, but doesn't it make more sense if you want to kill the flyweight division to have Henry Cejudo go up and yes. fight at 135? Yes. yes I, I'm just saying. And the two belts thing rapidly becoming not as cool as it once was the more people are able to do it. Yeah. Maybe when TJ Dillashaw does it is the moment where we're like, okay, champ, champ isn't a thing anymore. Dollar, dollar, Dillashaw. Uh, this week, I'm just saying... Do you see Mike Perry on Twitter? We talked about the map saying, good job, Cowboy Cerrone, you broke my arm. Uh, but then uh, early, early Sunday morning or Monday morning, I guess, this tweet from him after the fight. There were so many var- variables I see now that I didn't see last night. Knowledge is power. Now I know. I'm just saying, wait, what do you know? What is he talking about? What, what variables? What the, are the variables? Takedowns? Jiu-jitsu? Submissions? I also this is not only so Mike Perry it's so MMA fighter in general to be like okay I lost this one fight but now I got it figured out yep it all became clear to me yeah just saying just saying that's gonna do it for this week's co-main event podcast we will be back next week to look at all the stuff that happens at UFC fight night 140 where the main event I'm not making this up (laughs) the main event is Neil Magny versus Santiago Ponzanibio That one is coming to you live from Buenos Aires, Argentina. So uh, we will be talking about that. Maybe even looking ahead to UFC Fight Night 141, where the main event is a rematch between Francis Ngannou and Curtis Blades. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out.